Hello! I apologize for the long delay. This is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 9th, 2013. We had some serious talk about, I've been having talk shoot difficulties on and off for several months now, and tonight they got even more serious than usual, because neither of the two good brothers who run the boards at TalkShoe for my programs could load the program page at TalkShoe in order to start the program. So, so TalkShoe, I'm not going to give up on TalkShoe that damned easy. I'm going to stick around, if nothing, to be a thorn in their sides for as long as I can until it becomes no longer feasible. Of course, other so-called Christian identity pastors have no problems with talk show. I won't consider that a coincidence. Tonight we're going to do something a little different, something we haven't done in, a, in, in several months. We're going to present an Adolf Hitler speech. Known as the speech in the Lowenbrau Keller in Munich on November 8, 1940, I have Sword Brethren here with me tonight, and he would rather call it the 1940 Munich March Commemoration Speech, but which right. is probably a better title. It's commemorating the march from Munich, I believe, in 1924. 1923, the, the, the Beer Hall Putsch. 
it is what I believe it's commemorating. Yes, I'm sorry, 1923, yes. November 8th, 1923, which was actually the day before the fifth anniversary of the proclamation of the Weimar Republic on November 9th, 1918. Right, and interestingly enough, it, it appears there were some hostages taken during the march in the beer hall, but really nobody was killed. It, it wasn't some drown them in their own blood leftist type march where, you know, if, if the communists were rising up in Munich, there'd be hundreds dead. Well, look at the Bavarian Soviet Republic of 1919. Well, well right, absolutely. That this, um, yeah, you know, yeah, you, we, we had decided to present an Adolf Hitler speech this evening, and, and you chose this one. Is there any particular reason? Well, I just, I really like the the Munich commemoration speeches. Of course, there was one each year, and I just like this one. Hitler pokes a, a bit of fun and jabs Churchill because Churchill is saying that the Germans are down to their last three U-boats, and the war is soon going to be won, and Germany won't last. Till, and, you know, war will be over by Christmas, and Germany will surrender before 1941, and it's just rather comical. You know, Hitler addresses some of the points, and he discusses why those men gave their life on the march, and, and you know, um, in November in Munich that they had no hope of victory, but they knew they had to march for Germany, and that they had an incalculable love for their their homeland, their fatherland, and that's what compelled them to march that day and die that day. Okay, a little background on the speech. In, in November of 1940, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, had just been reelected for his third term. And remember, he's going to keep us out of the war. The day after this speech... November 9th, 1940, Neville Chamberlain died. He he um he he was he's mischaracterized. He he's characterized differently in this speech by Adolf Hitler than he's characterized by Jewish academia and media today. And maybe we could discuss that a little when we get to it. Certainly. Would you like to proceed, or would you like me to proceed? All right. We now celebrate once more the 9th of November. And as back then, a rally unites us on the eve of this day. For us, the year 1923 was a high point in the struggle for power in Germany. This struggle, and hence the significance of the day which we are celebrating, can be comprehended only by those who reflect on the age in which we found ourselves then, and who, above all, bring back before their eyes the historic events leading up to this gigantic struggle. As a former soldier of the World War and present supreme commander of the German Wehrmacht, I can say they would never have carried the victory over Germany back then had not their allies broken us internally for years. I, I would like to talk about that. I, I would like to talk about that. Had not their allies broken us internally. He's talking about World War One. The Jews. Their allies, the Jews, right. Their allies, the Jews, had broken Germany internally. Hitler sincerely believed this. He documented it. And, um, I have a couple of quotes from Mein Kampf. From page 189, I'll start with, with, with page 189. I have one paragraph. It is quite different with the masses of our population, he's talking about the masses of German people, who are imbued with the ideas of internationalism, which we saw from, from right from the, the 1848 revolution and even before that, right? 
Through the primitive roughness of their natures, they are disposed to accept the preaching of violence, while at the same time their Jewish leaders, sounds like America today, doesn't it, are more brutal and ruthless. They will crush any attempt at a German revival, just as they smashed the German army by striking at it from the rear. And, and he's talking about Germany under the Weimar Republic, which was basically Germany under control of the Jews. From page 191 of Mein Kampf. If the German trades unions had defended the interests of the working classes uncompromisingly during the war, even if during the war they had used the weapon of the strike to force the industrialists who were also Jews, right, who were greedy for higher dividends to grant the demands of the workers for whom the unions acted, if at the same time they had stood up as good Germans for the defense of the nation as stoutly as for their own claims, and if they had given to their country what was their country's due, then the war would never have been lost. How ludicrously, how ludicrously insignificant would all and even the greatest economic concession had been in the face of the tremendous importance of such a victory. He, he, he basically blamed the war uh, on the trades union leadership, which was under the control of Jews, and on the capitalists, factory owners, which were for the most part Jews. And I'd like to remind everyone of Germany and the Jewish problem by Wiebe. And here's a quote. From October 20th, 1918, in the socialist paper Vorwärts, written by the chief editor, the Jew, Friedrich Stamper, who stated, while the war is still going on, mind you, quote, Germany must, that is our inflexible will as socialists, strike her war flag forever without bearing it home in victory for the last time, end quote. Right. And on that note, I have a quote from page 115 of Mein Kampf where Hitler actually um, portrays how the, the Jews cost Germany the war, World War I, where he says, just when preparations were being made to launch a final offensive which would bring this seemingly eternal struggle to an end, while endless columns, and, and be mindful that Germany never lost a battle on German soil in the First World War, while endless columns of transports were bringing men and munitions to the front, and while the men were being trained for that final onslaught, then it was that greatest act of treachery during the whole war was accomplished in Germany. Germany must not win the war. He's repeating that the um, ideologue, the, the Jewish ideologues of, of um, Germany and their attitudes at that time where he says Germany must not win the war at that moment when victory seemed ready to alight on the German standards a conspiracy was arranged for the purpose of striking at the heart of the German spring offensive with one blow from the rear and thus making victory impossible a general strike in the munition factories was organized if this conspiracy and I believe the United States has laws against those things in wartime. If this conspiracy could achieve its purpose, the German front would have collapsed and the wishes of the Vorwarts that this time victory should not take 
the side of the German banners, that was the, the Vorwarts is the organ of the Social Democratic Party, would have been fulfilled. For want of musician, munitions at the front would be broken through within a few weeks, the offensive would be effectively stopped and the Entente saved. Then international finance would assume control over Germany. Hitler understood that. And he understood the purpose of, of, of bringing Germany into this war. And the internal objective of the Marxist national betrayal would be achieved. Hitler also understood that the Marxists, the, the Marxist Jew agitators were working and, and, and they were the, um, the, the preponderance of people leading the trade unions and they were working with the global capitalists. They were working with the, the, the international capitalists to bring Germany down, to subject Germany. Right. Jews at both ends of the stick. Hitler goes on to say that objective was the destruction of the national economic system and the establishment of international capitalistic domination in its stead. And this goal has really been reached thanks to the stupid credulity on the, of the one side, the, the capitalists, and the unspeakable treachery of the others, the Marxists. And that's that that's um, Mein Kampf, and and that is basically the meat uh, of how Hitler blamed the Jews primarily for the loss, the German loss of World War One. All right, and a bit more on this from Germany and the Jewish problem. After a systematic preparation by these German and Russian Jews, chaos and indescribable horror was finally let loose on them, let loose by them on the German nation, culminating at Munich. Here again, it was a Jew, Kurt Eisner, an author who played the part of leader and organizer. In 1917, when Germany was still fighting for her existence, he had already agitated for strikes and revolution. Eisner founded a workers' council at Munich on strictly Bolshevik lines. His revolutionary tribunal contained nearly all Jews, five of them in number. Only those who have experienced that period of Jewish terror and slaughter, the murder of hostages, plunderings, and acts of arson, are able to realize why Munich became the birthplace of National Socialism, whence the movement spread to other parts of Germany and finally put an end to Jewish domination. So, as I said, when the Beer Hall Putsch was going on, they didn't massacre hostages and burn the city down. But when the Jews controlled Munich for a few weeks in 1919, at least several hundred, if not several thousand people were massacred. What was it Clifton said? When the Jews are in charge, the heads roll. Yes, that's that. That's the case. <clears throat> that's always the case. The, the Jew will use um, political polarization as, as a front and, and political discourse and, and political debate as a front until he gets full control and, and then he seeks to um, viciously cut off those who oppose him. Right, so for as long as he remains in power, he'll kill as many of his enemies as he can get his hands on because he knows his power is not going to last indefinitely. Well, well, that was the rule of thumb in the Soviet Union under Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin and, and so forth. And, right. And, and the Jews ruled the Soviet Union for, for its entire history. A lot of clowns would debate that. The proof of the pudding is that when, when the Soviet Union broke up, Jews ended up with all the property. They ended up with all of the all, all of the um, national resources and, and manufacturing capacity for a song right. or a dance. The, the Jews can't have that fact known, 
They don't want their involvement, their intimate involvement in the Soviet apparatus of terror and control and oppression and repression known, so they try and cast themselves as victims. They were victims, just like the Ukrainians. Stalin brutalized all of them. Didn't you know Stalin was an anti-Semite? So they're basically casting themselves in the roles of victims. Well, well right, and, and they're, they're always liars. Absolutely. But since Stalin's basically incapable of being redeemed in the eyes of most Westerners, even most Western socialists don't want anything to do with Stalin, they now realize that he's a villain, they can't restore his reputation, so they just say, oh, well, he's an anti-Semite, too, so we, we, we suffered, too. We, we, we didn't like Stalin, we never supported Stalin. You go with Yezov, they, they weren't Jews, they were persecuted by Stalin. And I, I think that there's only one person in the West that actually, you know, is actually working on an active, ongoing basis to say Stalin was a great democratic leader. Is that a professor in Montclair State University in New Jersey? Yes. We don't really need to name him, do we? No. Please. But let's continue with the speech. All right. Four years they labored. It was even necessary to summon an American sorcerer priest, Valber Priester, who found the formula which made it possible for the German Volk to fall for the word of honor of a foreign president. And, and that's an allusion to Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Absolutely, because those 14 points were resoundingly ignored when it, when it came to the issue of Austria joining with Germany. We were told that, that what, what Wilson said there would be self-determination, sovereignty, and people would decide who they wanted their rulers to be. But Austria was told, I believe, by the Treaty of Locarno that they were not to unify with Germany. Well, well right. Were, it, it was Woodrow Wilson held these 14 points out as a carrot, and the primary swallower of that carrot what was the um, the German Chancellor at the time, who was Prince Maximilian of Baden, Prince Max of Baden, he, he basically sold Germany out, hoping that the 14-point plan of Wilson's would be implemented. He requested an armistice and peace negotiations based on Wilson's 14 points. And he had, when he did that, he really did have every um, expectation of of that being the case, but as soon as the armistice was effected, Germany was sold down the river, and it's all Woodrow Wilson's fault. I'm I would assert this because Woodrow Wilson, because America was mobilized and America was the power in Europe. At that time, America was right. in a position to make sure that the word of the American president was upheld. And if America had asserted itself, France and England would have had to accede to, to, to the president's wishes. However, that was never the plan. That was never the plan. Wilson was a whore for the damn Jews in, in Wall Street. He was a whore for, for, the, for the shifts and, and Baruchs and Untermeyers and that whole crowd. And, and he never planned on, uh, on enforcing. And, and for, yes, it was a typical Canaanite Jew bait and switch is exactly what it was. Just like you go to a TV huckster on Canal Street in New York City and, and you, you go in for a $300 27-inch TV and, and you find out all they have is $400 19-inch TVs. 
because that they, they sold out of the one three hundred dollar twenty seven that they want you in the store. They get you in the store and they sell you down the river. They got Prince Maximilian of Baden in the store, and as soon as they got him in the store, that that they they pulled his pants down around his ankles and sold him down the river. And I misspoke. It was not the Treaty of Locarno. It was the Treaty of Saint Germain. And I'm of the view that. If the Germans had been told, here's the treaty we intend to sign with you, it's the Treaty of Versailles, and if they'd been told what the terms of the treaty were going to be, there would not have been an armistice. They would have continued fighting, and the Allies would have had to grind them down over the next five or however many years. There is absolutely no way that the German people, and even Prince Max, I don't believe, would have ever acceded to terms such as Versailles. Well, it was a Carthaginian peace. And it basically requires the destruction and dismantling of the German state and nation. It, it shows the naivety of character. I mean, I, I truly believe that Kaiser Wilhelm and, and the German people were of the most noble character in, in World War One, And the, the, the British in the city and the Wall Street bankers... And the American whore politicians had no character at all, that they only wanted to put Germany under their thumb, as Adolf Hitler points out, to have Germany um, basically infested with, with the international banking disease. And that's what the war was all about. And they, they, they pulled out all stops. That they, they, Character and principle mean nothing. What went um you're playing with a, a, a den of thieves. Absolutely. And, and since, since noble white people have the the um the, the one weakness in their being is to project their noble values onto other peoples. That they always do it. They do it to this day. And well, I've thought about that too. We, we project values. our compassion and our goodness and our wants and desires and ambitions onto others, and we assume all people want to live in peace with their neighbors and be happy and have a nice, you know, comfortable life, and they want to work and get ahead and make the world a better place. But a lot of people just want to loot and pillage and grab whatever they can get their greedy hands on. Well, well right. And the, and the whore politicians at the West who were the fronts for the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Schiffs, that they, they had no such principles. None whatsoever. Wilson never, never. What Wilson was what had every means at his hand to make sure that his fourteen points were enforced, and he never attempted to do it. it, it he gave it lip service. He never attempted to do it. Well, I think he was the pawn. Well, well, yeah, you know, American politicians, if they had any honor at all. They would have made sure that Wilson's 14 points were, were um, that because this country, this nation gave its word that those 14 points were enforced. They had right. no honor. Uh, I mean, World War One to me, the, the World War One was basically that the American people, the power of the American people is used to hand the German people over to the Jews of London. That, that's the way right. I see the, the end of World War One. When they rose up in the 30s and 40s, the American power was again used to return them to the Jews. Well, while I've been covering the Book of Amos on, on my um, Christagenia program on Friday nights, and, and one of the things that the people of Tyre and, and the people, the, the Philistines, 
the, the thing that, that they are chastised for above all others of, of their transgressions was for selling the Israelites into slavery to the Edomites. In 1914 through in, in 1918, the American people sold their German brethren into slavery to the Edomites. We did the same thing that the ancient Tyrians were were um, punished for by Yahweh our God. We did the same exact thing. All right. To continue, I took the same stand in our struggle abroad. Any such new intrigue, any new attempt to mobilize states against us through treaties and agreements only led to my accelerating armament. I was firmly determined to risk it all. Without interruption, the struggle went on with the objective of eliminating the Versailles Treaty. For my party comrades, this I had to do if I were not to be a liar. After all, what did we fight for? When we made our first appearances in the years 1920 and 21 and 1922, our program was the elimination of Versailles. I could not all of a sudden say, forget about it. Well, well, right. How many American politicians do that? They promise you the world and they deliver nothing. Well, well right, but Adolf Hitler had principle. He, he was a man of character and principle. He couldn't. It wasn't just some cheap talking point to get elected. Like we see today over and over again. I mean, don't pick a politician because they've all done it, every single one of them. That the um, Germany would either slowly bleed to death under Versailles or risk all in a stand for, for principle and liberty and justice. And, and Adolf Hitler, um, his gamble was to risk all and, and get the German people out from under the slavery which Versailles imposed upon them. And if America hadn't stabbed Germany in the back, it would have worked. You know, I, I remember when. Italy invaded Greece in 1940-41. The president, FDR, he, he declared the hand that has held the dagger has, you know, struck it into the back of its neighbor. He either said that about the invasion of Greece or the invasion of France, one or the other, when Italy invaded one or the other. And I, I'm wondering, though, Italy had no treaty of non-aggression with either of those powers, and Italy was an Axis partner, so it was inevitable Italy was going to wind up at war with France. It wasn't inevitable for America to stick a dagger in Germany's back when Germany is busy fighting the Soviet Union in a life-or-death struggle determining the, the fate of the world, whether it will be national sovereignty and freedom or communism, globalism, and collectivism. The Americans attacked Germany. They were waging a quasi-naval war. and Finally, Hitler had enough, and he had no choice but to declare war. But essentially, America forced the issue. Germany didn't want war with the United States. Well, well Lend-Lease was a declaration of war. Right. Lend-Lease was a violation of neutrality. It, it was tantamount to a declaration of war. Adolf Hitler knew it. Adolf Hitler talked about it. There, there were much more treacherous things that Roosevelt was doing than Lend-Lease. But Lend-Lease was tantamount to a declaration of war against Germany. Right. I mean, for instance, they allowed several hundred American pilots to go to Britain in 1940, and they were serving as, quote, volunteers in the RAF. And they also allowed hundreds, if not thousands, of RAF personnel to train as pilots here in the U.S. on American aircraft. That's not the action of a neutral power. Well, well, absolutely not. And, and um, yeah, you know, I could tell you all day I don't want to fight with you as I'm stabbing you in the back. <laughs> you know, and, and and you're not expected to defend yourself. That's crazy. So what? The America's basically bobbing up and down in front of Germany, jabbing them in the face while proclaiming peace. We want peace. Boom. We're neutral. Boom. We don't want to fight. Boom. 
and then at some point Germany's going to, you know, wind up and throw a punch back. No doubt. And it happened. Continuing. I was determined to make Germany free once again. I led this struggle step by step, and honestly, I had the ambition of maintaining the peace. From a multitude of rallies and publications, you know of the foreign policy conception I embraced at the time. I wished to establish close bonds of friendship with England. I thought the Germanic races had to come together. I wanted the same relationship with Italy. And further, I thought of Japan as a power with interests parallel to our own. As far as Italy was concerned, this attempt succeeded thanks to the ingenious actions of the man who founded fascism and who was victorious in the same struggle in his country, which we National Socialists were confronted with in Germany, and in the last instance, we succeeded with Japan also. However, we met with failure regarding England in striking contrast to our own desire. It was not our fault. To the contrary, I attempted up to the last minute until a few days prior to the outbreak of war to realize my original foreign policy objective. Now, now let me say that he's absolutely right. His original foreign policy objective was peace with England so so that he could defend Europe against the Soviet hordes. And he, right up to to a few days before the war, what we discussed this um, back two years ago, what, where Hitler reached out through England, not only throughout all of the years leading up to the war, he wanted peace with England on a basis of blood. But right at the very end of the peace, Hitler dropped thousands of leaflets containing his last appeal to reason, it was called. He dropped those laugh. leaflets over English cities and they, as an appeal to the English people on the basis of blood and kinship. That, that they should have peace with Germany, that he did not want war with England, and they laughed. And yet, after all that, he still let their army get away at Dunkirk, which I think, of course, in hindsight, it was a horrible mistake. Well, well in hindsight, it was a horrible mistake, but he his forces were so far superior that that, too, was basically a last-ditch appeal for peace. Right, but if you understand the history of the English, especially what they did in the Boer War, I probably would have massacred everybody at Dunkirk to demoralize the British and force them to surrender at that point, at the very least take them prisoner. Well, well it would have been a difficult task, and, and, and with the terrain and the battle, even, even though he seemed to have had them cornered, it, it really wasn't as easy as it sounds. Mm-hmm. It, it was a... Um, it, he had a lot more to profit by letting them go if England saw his magnanimity that, than he had to risk. And, and I really believe that Adolf Hitler um, thought that appeals to blood would ultimately win. Blood is thicker than water. I, I mean, it's an old Germanic saying, blood is thicker than water. And, and it's, well, well, we hope as kinsmen that it's true and, and it's, the, the problem is that the Rothschilds really ran England to a much greater degree, I think, than Hitler realized, and blood's not thicker than gold. Absolutely, and I think English history shows, though, that they've basically killed all of their white neighbors at any time they've had a chance. The Irish, the Scots, the Welsh. Yes, they did, and my, 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 my belief is that that, too, is all at the behest of those same bankers of the city. And and the, the the lure of 
domination over their neighbors and, and the profits to be made through that. So they've chosen money over blood. Every time. And greed over justice. Continuing. At the time, I made the British ambassador the greatest offers. I was willing to cooperate with England, but it was in vain. I had already realized at the time that certain war profiteers had been agitating for years without anyone putting an end to this business. There could be no doubt that one day they would bring the British people to hate and to be furious with Germany. And meanwhile, the German Volk would harbor no hatred for England, and thus one fine day, Germany would have stumbled into a war without any psychological preparation. I already warned of this in the years 1938 and 1939, and most notably in my speech at Saarbrücken, I, was, I emphasized that things could not go on in this manner. If England persisted in this campaign of hatred, then I would be forced to put German propaganda to use. And there was an article today in MSNBC talking about a, an American-British bomber crew. They were flying a mission. They had just dropped bombs along a city, um, somewhere along the Rhine, and they had been crippled by anti-aircraft artillery fire, I believe, and they were struggling to get back to the coast and find their way back to Britain. And a German fighter intercepted them. And instead of shooting them down, he guided them to the coast and pointed them back towards England, which I think that was misguided chivalry. The article talks about how, how heroic and chivalrous the German fighter pilot was. and He was defying orders and risking death because they were ordered to shoot down any bomber. And it occurred to me that here's a bomber that might have just bombed his house and killed his family or his neighbors, and they're certainly going to come back with the next bombing raid, and he's helping them get back to Britain, where the the, um, the choice is obvious, shoot them down. At least it's obvious to me. It seems to me that compassion is lost on some people, since the British, of course, never returned the favor. Look what they did to Dresden. Well... That seems to be the case, without a doubt. And thus came the day when it was no longer a question whether war could be avoided, but rather whether it could be postponed for one, two, or three years. This would have been possible only through the most severe humiliation of Germany. And one thing you must understand here, my party comrades, on the day I realized that England was only stalling for time, that they were determined to wage war under any circumstance, which was openly revealed in the statements of British statesmen, on that day I had but one desire. If they were determined to declare war on us, then at least so I hoped they should do this during my lifetime. For I knew this would be the toughest of all struggles ever forced on the German Volk. Now not only do I imagine myself to be the toughest man the German Volk has possessed for decades, perhaps even centuries, but I also possess the greatest authority. Above all, I believe in my success, and I believe in it without reserve. I am firmly convinced that this battle will end not a whit differently from the battle I once waged internally. I am convinced that Providence has led me up to this point and has held all trials at a distance so that I could wage this battle for the German Volk. And finally... I did go through the Great War myself, and I belonged to those who were cheated of the victory back then. And therefore, it is my unshakable resolve that this battle shall end differently from the battle back then. And of course, Hitler had every right to expect that and believe that, because he had more or less cleaned up the fifth column that was present in Germany during the last war. Right. Yeah, you know, this. I don't think a lot of people realize the position that Germany was in between the wars, between the wars, not only with with the economic, the the oppressive economic provisions of Versailles, 
but but with all of the land, the German land with German inhabited by German people, which was virtually being ruled over by foreign governments. Not not only Danzig, but but um, Alsace Lorraine, what which Hitler Hitler um actually relinquished claims to Alsace Lorraine, even though the Germans had unjustly lost that region after World War One. It, it was that wasn't good enough. Time. France wanted all the Saarland. Fr- France wanted the Saarland and the Rhineland, and and the Saarland and the Rhineland were, were taken out of German control after World War One. Right, the French invaded and they extracted all the resources and they made hundreds of thousands of Germans work in the mines. And, and right, and and Germany wasn't allowed to um to move any arms into the Rhineland whatsoever. France basically had cover in the provisions of Versailles for looting and pillaging the Rhineland and, and the Saarland and, and and um the Sudetenland, the the um the Tyrol. What was lost to Italy at the end of World War One? The Tyrol was basically, um, for the most part, inhabited by Germanic people and was German. And, and Hitler was willing to relinquish claims. He stated this explicitly. He would relinquish claims to Alsace-Lorraine, or, or I should probably call it Elsass-Lothringen, but I can't really pronounce German very good, but I can't pronounce French either, right? And, and, and the Tyrol, he relinquished claims to those areas. But he wanted back, uh, I mean, the German people, he, he wanted um, the, the Poles to stop oppressing the people of Danzig, and, and he wanted back the Saarland, and, 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 and that wasn't, you know, the French didn't want to budge at all. They didn't want him to have anything back. They, they wanted to take more. They wanted to take everything, basically. Well, didn't the French grab up most of Germany's colonies? I, I believe that German West Africa, Cameroon, went to the French. The French basically grabbed up all of Germany's colonies in Africa, aside from Tanzania and German Southwest Africa, which went to the British. Yeah, yes, the French profited. That, that They did the least to win the war, and they profited the most from, from the First right. World War, no doubt. And then they complained that they lost, you know, 20 or 30 percent of all young men of fighting age. Well, that's just a reflection on their poor tactics and strategy. France really contributed virtually nothing to the overall Allied victory. It was basically... Um, I'm sorry. Maybe that's, an over, maybe that's an oversimplification, but America basically won World War I for the Allies and the Jews. Well, well I sincerely believe Germany, Germany. Would, Germany would have certainly prevailed in World War I if it weren't for American intervention. The Jews knew that. That's why the, the, the Balfour Declaration was signed. That, that's why Woodrow Wilson was compromised. It, it's the, right. That there's a, Although, whole, a, a whole lot of other treachery involved, but basically that's in a nutshell. I'm also convinced, too, if it hadn't been for the fifth column and the munitions plant strikes that the Jews organized, that even American intervention would not have proved decisive, and Germany could have fought them to a standstill and negotiated an honorable peace. But American intervention combined with the munitions strike was too much to continue. When I spoke to you in the past year, the first phase of this battle lay behind us in 18 days. Our Wehrmacht crushed Poland. Others had imagined things would develop quite differently. And I believe you had some notes on that, Bill, something you wanted well, to well, say yeah, about Well, yeah, I like to laugh. I, I like to laugh. I could never remember his name, but I like to laugh at this Polish general, this um, uh, 
Smiggly. That word, Rids Smiggly. Rids Smiggly, Smiggly Rids. It, it's he he, act, he he was a painter and a poet. He he, he was a Polish um, nobleman, I, I I gather, and and he actually had a painting of himself in Berlin at, at the I think at the Brandenburg Gate. Right, riding through on a horse. Yeah, yes, and and um, victorious, and and that shows first that shows Polish bellicosity. The fact that that painting existed it is just one small um, sign, but but that helps to demonstrate that the Polish attitudes towards Germany and, and Polish bellicosity. And, and this man was basically the the second in command of Poland and and, and in command of their armed forces. And that was his attitude, that he painted a paint a self-portrait of himself riding victorious through the Brandenburg Gate before there was war in Germany, with, the, with Germany. Well, you know, in the 20s and 30s, Poland insisted that Danzig was Polish, and then they started to say East Prussia should go to Poland, Upper Silesia should go to Poland, Pomerania should go to Poland, all of Brandenburg should go to Poland, and then they started to say that it's not the Oder River anymore that they'll be satisfied with. They went all the way up to the Alb. So they right. basically wanted half of Germany. Right. And they figured because Germany was weak, they could get it. But they weren't counting on the National Socialist Revolution. And this Polish commander, Marshal Smigli, who has this painting of himself riding victorious through Berlin. The paint wasn't even dry when the Wehrmacht troops captured his headquarters and found the painting. He fled ahead of their arrival, abandoning his men in the field. He abandoned his army and fled to Romania. So much for triumphantly crossing into Berlin through the Brandenburg Gate. Well, well that seems to be um, repayment for his, for his vanity, right? <laughs> he, he couldn't flee fast enough. <laughs> Others had imagined things would develop quite differently. They had been convinced that the battle would last six, eight, or ten months. They said to themselves, wars with decisive results are no longer possible. Under the best of circumstances, trench warfare will ensue. A front will be erected in the east, and this will slowly bleed Germany to death. Well, well Meanwhile, the, English, the, the English war planners had definitely overestimated the effectiveness of the Polish um, horse cavalry against the German panzer divisions, I believe. Right, and, and the few tanks the Poles did have, they didn't have any radios, they couldn't coordinate them. Their aircraft had no radios either, which, of course, the German aircraft and tanks, every single one of them had a radio that allows a lot better coordination, and you can actually utilize the equipment to its full potential. A front will be erected in the east, and this will slowly bleed Germany to death. Meanwhile, the west will arm. Then the summer of 1940 will come, and then one will move up through Belgium and the Netherlands to the Ruhr Territory frontier, and then slowly one will master Germany. That is how they imagine things. And besides this, they believe that only a few weeks later, we have heard as much from a, all sides a revolution, would break out in Germany. This, moreover, would lead to destitution. They had not an inkling of the extent of our armament and believed that I was bluffing, just as they had been trying to bluff us for years. They did not think anyone would really do what he said he would. Therefore, they were convinced that this war would be a relatively easy one for them. A year ago, as I mentioned earlier, Poland was eliminated, and thus we thwarted their plans a first time. I was able to refer to this great success on November 8, 1939. Today, one year later, I have further successes to report. This, first and foremost, 
only he who himself served as a soldier in the Great War can appreciate fully, as he knows what it means not only to crush the entire West within a few weeks, but also to take possession of Norway up to the North Cape, from where a front is drawn today from Kirkens down to the Spanish border. All the hopes of the British warmongers were then torn asunder, for they had intended to wage war on the periphery, to cut off the German vital lines, and slowly strangle us. The reverse has come true. This continent is slowly mobilizing and reflecting upon itself against the enemy of the continent. Within a few months, Germany has given actual freedom to this continent. The British attempt to balkanize Europe, and if this, the British statesmen should take note, has been thwarted and has ended. England wanted to disorganize Europe. Germany and Italy will organize Europe. And I think it's, it's particularly showing how weak, decadent, disgusting, and gutted France had been internally that, you know, they sustained four years of war in World War I, and they couldn't last five weeks in World War II. It just shows you how weak their multicultural, multiracial, Judaized empire, republic, whatever you want to call it, had become. And, and France had a large army at this time. I, I forget the exact figure. It may have been as many as, as I think they boasted as many as six million. I think overall, yes, all of their forces combined, but they had a, a, a sizable number deployed on the border with Italy and on the border with Spain, anticipating attacks from those areas. I think the, the amount deployed against the Germans was roughly comparable. They had about 2.3 million combatants in 94 to 100 divisions, and that would count the uh, Maginot Line garrison. They also brought in several hundred thousand soldiers from their colonial empire, which um, I didn't count in that 2.3 million figure. So they had between maybe 400,000 and 700,000 Moroccans. Yeah, and what was the Amarubian. nature right. What was the nature of those troops from their colonial empires? That, that was Hitler actually complained in Mein Kampf that France was planting niggers, as he put it, in the Rhineland. And they were. They were planting colonial troops in the Rhineland. Well, there's an account, too, in Italy in 1944 where French colonial troops from Tunisia and Morocco serving in central Italy, they um, crushed an Italian unit, forced a German unit to fall back, and then the people in a village said, you know, they woke up one day and there were thousands of these North Africans streaming down from the hill, you know, the nearby hills where the, the German lines had been the early, you know, earlier in the week before they collapsed, and they basically raped hundreds upon hundreds of women, if not thousands of women, and they sacked all the villages they could get their hands on. And the Pope even begged the Americans and the British not to let any French colonial troops or American Negroes in Rome. The Pope insisted, you know, he swore, he said, take my word for it, they will rape all the women they can get their paws on. And the Americans thought that was biased and prejudiced. Well, it's true. I mean, it's true, and it happened. But I, I imagine Spike Lee's not going to cover that when he makes a movie showing all those heroic Negroes fighting in Italy and crushing the SS. No, of course not. Now in England, they may declare that the war is going on, but I'm completely indifferent to this. It will go on until we end it, and we will end it. Of this they can be sure, and it will end in our victory, that you can believe. I realize one thing. 
If I had stepped up as a prophet on January 1st of this year to explain to the English by the spring of this year, we will have ruined your plans in Norway, and it will not be you in Norway, but Germany. In the summer of the same year, you will no longer be in the Netherlands or come to the Netherlands, but we will have occupied it. In the same summer, you will not have advanced through Belgium to the German borders, but we will be at yours. And if I had said by this summer there will be no more France, then all they would have said was, this man is insane. And so I shall cease from making any further prophecies today. I would merely like to give a few explanations to the German Volk that the struggle up to now has led to results of an unequaled nature. One, in terms of personnel, as bitter as it was for the individual family which had to make the sacrifice, it has cost the German Volk practically no sacrifices. In some, the sacrifices we made in this war are not as big as those which the War of 1870-71 to 71 cost us. Indeed, they are barely half of this number. In terms of personnel, our calculations were upset insofar as we did not have to touch the earmarked gigantic reserve armies which we had counted on as replacements for losses. Many men with long service records could thus be dismissed. And still, mostly through the younger grades, we were in a position to strengthen the Wehrmacht at the same time. In terms of personnel, the German army looks completely different from how it looked in the World War. Only a few days ago, I drove through Belgium and France, and as an old soldier of the World War, I must say our Wehrmacht looks magnificent today, irrespective of whether we are talking about the Army, Navy, Luftwaffe, or Waffen-SS. All look equally handsome. They cannot be compared to those of the years 1914 or 1915. Second, in material gains, I prepared for this war as no other war has been prepared for. It was well worth it. The material sacrifices of this war are of no consequence. The ammunition we have used up in battle up to now is equivalent to barely a month's production. The reserves are so enormous that in many areas I had to halt production because there is no further storage room available. I have redirected production into other areas where I believe it to be important that we be especially strong. You have heard the other threats of what the other threats of what they will all produce. Australia has six or seven million inhabitants, including Bushmen, and in spite of this, they want to produce eight times as many airplanes as Germany. Canada has nine million inhabitants. Now they want to build 12 times as many airplanes as Germany. As far as American production is concerned, astronomical figures do not suffice to describe it. In this realm, I do not want to enter into competition, but one thing I can assure you of, we can mobilize all of Europe's forces. That's and I think here. It, 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 it merits mention that Germany wasn't planning a war of aggression because they didn't lay the foundation for a, a modern surface fleet in 
kicking into overdrive until, say, 36, 37, when international events made it clear that the Soviet Union had to be taken seriously and the Western propaganda was so intensely focused on Germany, they had no choice but to rearm. It's not as though Hitler came into power in 33, 34, and immediately they started building 10,000 tanks and twice as many planes. Germany entered the Second World War with only about maybe three or 4,000 tanks and three or 4,000 aircraft maximum. And the Soviets easily had ten times that number. Well, well, by 1938, the Jewish media in the United States was brazen enough to admit that the United States was planning for war against Germany. That there's evidence right. of that in, in Life magazine. I have it on my Mein Kampf site. But the, um, here, Adolf Hitler, and, and we discussed this at length in, 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 in podcasts last year on the Pataki reports and, and, and the, um, the planning and the agitation of Franklin Roosevelt to lure Poland into war with Germany so that they could use that as a, a device to um, declare war on Germany, to have a war against Germany. And, and that was all planned by Franklin Roosevelt, and, and it was planned from the mid-30s. Now, now um, here Adolf Hitler understands in 1940, he's counting America as an adversary in this speech. He, he's counting on an expect. He, he's um, professing the expectation that America would be an adversary in this war. Or at the very least, they're going to be this arsenal of so-called democracy or arsenal of plutocracy, and they're arming all of Germany's enemies, so they're a de facto enemy. Right. I mean, if you have a conflict with somebody, let's say you're Gang A and there's a conflict with Gang B and I'm supplying guns to Gang A, well, then I'm involved in the conflict. I'm not neutral. So FDR, if, if the military had taken their oath seriously, they would have deposed FDR. And if the Congress took their role seriously, they would have indicted him. German productive capabilities are the highest in the world, and we will not leave matters at that, since we are in a position today to mobilize the forces of nearly all of Europe, and that I am doing this in the industrial sphere you can take for granted. Our material armament, therefore, is enormous, and it is just beginning to grow. Even though we have prepared this industrial mobilization for years, as you know, the initial push in terms of greater figures will come only in another one to two, one to one and a half years. And this is the case now. And summing up, I may say one thing. We are better prepared for the future than ever before. We are prepared in terms of materiel. We are prepared in terms of personnel. And that the Wehrmacht makes the most of every day, this anyone who himself served as a soldier knows well. Not a day is lost. This foremost military instrument of the world is being attended to and improved without a moment's interruption. And when the hour of large-scale operations comes once again, then I hope we shall achieve exactly the same results we have in the past. We have prepared everything in the most thorough manner in order to act quickly and daringly. And the hour will come in which those gentlemen whose mouths have already conquered the world once again will have to take up arms. And then we will see who has put these months to better use, we or the others. Germany, with its allies at any rate, is strong enough to face any combination in the world. There is no coalition of powers which is militarily equal to ours. Economically speaking, the long preparations of peacetime have proved well worth the effort. 
The four-year plan, which we recently prolonged for another four years, has created large reserves for us. The Englishmen know this quite well. Otherwise, they would not have cursed us so vividly because of it. It was to render us invulnerable to attempts at isolation or blockade. Besides this, it remains to be seen who will be blockaded a few months hence. We or the others. I believe that in some spheres, the English have been dissuaded from lying. And as an aside, I don't think Hitler conceived of the possibility that the coalition would not only be Britain and America, but Britain, America, and the Soviet Union. I think he was anticipating, of course, you know, America entering the war on Britain's side, but not in conjunction with the Soviet Union. That's sort of an unholy alliance. Well, well right, it is an unholy on the alliance. Surface, the capitalists and the Bolsheviks. Right, but he had already professed, he already professed in Mein Kampf that the, um, the understanding of the connection between international capitalism and international Marxism. He understood that. He understood that the, the capitalists were behind the Marxists, were financing the Marxists. He understood that the Jews were in control of the Soviet Union. They were financing it. He, he, he professed that understanding in Mein Kampf on, on, many, on, on several occasions. And, and, and to me, reading it from, from my vantage point here today, I, I thought he professed it with... Um, but with stunning vision, that, that he saw exactly what was going on, in in spite of the, the dichotomy set up in the Jewish media, and in spite of all of the deception, he he had pretty good vision with that, and he understood that. Uh, I believe that the um, the Marxists, even those in the Soviet Union, were controlled by the international bankers. Right. And he saw, of course, the propaganda machine going on in America. So he knew America was coming for Germany. Oh, yes. He, he knew it was inevitable. He knew what Roosevelt was up to. They had, this is 1940, that they had the Pataki reports at this time. They knew, the Germans knew that Franklin Roosevelt was behind the Polish bellicosity. Uh, right. Hitler's underestimation was in the to the extent that the Jews had infiltrated America and were able to get the American people on board with this nonsense. Oh, absolutely. He understood the power of the Jewish media in the West to, to a great degree, yes. I, I don't think... You, you see, I really believe that his his thinking was that his appeals to blood and kinship with the English people would outweigh that. And, and of course, it didn't. Well, he made an appeal to justice, honor, and blood, and the Jews made an appeal to greed, and greed won out. If you want a comfortable life and a nice cushy job, go fight Germany, and then you can come back and have a cushy job, and here's your GI Bill in America, and whatever Britain had that was comparable. To continue on, Mr. Churchill, who only ate and six months ago declared, within one month, we will have destroyed 50% of their U-boats, was not able to say as much the next month, another 50%, because then none of them would have been left. So the next month, the hits accounted for only 30%. A month later, he could not say 20%, but had to content himself with 10%. And now, this general liar of world history, General Lugner der Weltgescheid, is beginning to admit that there appeared to be more of our U-boats than there were in the beginning. I think the he point believe, is that Hitler was lying about the number of kills, right? Right. Churchill insisted that almost all the German U-boats had been sunk. 
He can believe me. There are more now. He has no idea how many more there are. We will yet challenge them, these international capitalist liars, and we will live to see it. One day there will be no more Churchill, but more and more German U-boats. Well, I'm still now, looking forward to it. Absolutely. <laughs> and now that he could no longer disclaim the gist of it, this most ingenious strategist ever born has fastened on the war in the air. For this has been quite an ingenious idea of Mr. Churchill's, of all places in a weapons category in which England is the weakest in comparison to us, to launch the war in the air. You know that for years I made proposals to the world to forsake bombing and warfare, especially against civilian populations. England has declined this, perhaps in anticipation of the ensuing developments. Be that as it may, in spite of this, I did not allow battles to be waged against civilian populations in this war. In the war with Poland, I did not order nightly raids on Polish cities, since at night you cannot really hit your target with much accuracy. I allowed attacks to be carried out mostly during the day and only against military targets. I did the same in Norway. I did the same in the Netherlands, in Belgium, and in France. And then Mr. Churchill suddenly had the idea, since the Royal Air Force could not penetrate German airspace during the day, to terrorize the German civilian population with attacks by night. You know that I'm a patient man, my party comrades. I stood by for eight days. They dropped bombs on the civilian population along the Rhine. They dropped bombs on the civilian population in Westphalia. And I stood by for 14 days and thought to myself, the man is insane. He is introducing a type of warfare here which can lead only to England's destruction. When the war in the West came to an end, I extended my hand once more to England. Once more, I was chided in the most despicable fashion and spat on. Mr. Halifax behaved like a man gone mad. Well, they stepped up the bomb attacks. Again, I waited. And as an aside, Halifax, if I'm not mistaken, was the foreign secretary at the time under Churchill. The, the, um... I must say, that this is for, for months. England bombed purposely bombed civilian centers for months, and and Hitler's. I think it was to um, provoke a response from Germany and get Germany to shift from the airfields and start targeting British cities. So they wanted to save the RAF at the expense of British cities. Uh, I can't Jewish okay. country. I, I mean that, that they don't care how many goyim they kill. They never have, and and I can't. It's unfathomable that that these are acceptable political losses to an Englishman, right? Right. Again, I waited. I must say it was becoming increasingly difficult for me. For many came to me who said, how long do you still intend to wait, Fear? They are not going to stop by themselves. I waited three months altogether, and then one day I issued the order, alas, I am taking up this battle, and I am taking it up with the determination with which I always step up to do battle. That means to fight to the last from now on. They wanted a fight. They shall have a fight. They wanted to destroy Germany in the war in the air. I will show them who shall be destroyed. The English people, whom I can only pity, can thank the common criminal Churchill for this. Mr. Churchill has produced the greatest military nonsense in this fight for which a statesman or warlord ever was responsible. He fought with the weapon which is his weakest. He fought from a position which has been geographically disadvantageous to England ever since we held Trondheim and Brest. It was the weakest position which England could possibly maintain. We will persevere in this fight. I regret that it will demand sacrifices on our part as well. But I do know National Socialist Germany. Only Mr. Churchill does not know it. There is a big difference. He believes he could weary the German Volk. He completely forgot that now a different Germany has come into being. 
This Germany becomes all the more zealous with every bomb that is dropped. Its resolve is merely strengthened. Above all, it knows this nonsense must be done away with once and for all, and in this we are determined. Now, now here, we see, here we see that for, for three months, England bombed German civilian population centers before Hitler finally um, ceased the, the painful deliberations that he underwent to reciprocate in kind. He didn't want to bomb English. Even after three months, he did not want to bomb English civilian populations. And well, maybe we should call the History Channel and the BBC and they can correct some of these British people who talk about, oh, I lived through the Blitz, I did, I did. The German bombers, they, they came over and they leveled Coventry. Well, well, right, but that's the power of the Jewish media to, to ignore what the English are doing to German civilians for three months and then to cry foul when the Germans finally decide to reciprocate in, in, in kind. So if you stab someone in the back six or seven times and they finally turn around and shoot you, you don't have any right to gripe about it. You stabbed them in the back. Well, well of course not. And that's a, that, that's a fact of history. That, that's a, it, it's also a good demonstration of the power of propaganda because you can't convince an Englishman that the the, the um that the Blitz you know as far as I've ever seen that the Blitz was actually simply um just retaliation it, it was just retaliation yes they admit though sometimes that Berlin was bombed by the RAF who bombed it by mistake and that it provoked the German response but the British didn't mean to bomb Berlin well it wasn't just one isolated incident they they dropped a lot of bombs on Westphalia throughout the cities in the Rhineland and the Saarland. I believe they also bombed Hamburg. They certainly bombed Berlin, but it wasn't some isolated accident that they were heading for a factory and they just happened to carpet bomb a city. Right. The British seem to have selective memory when it comes to these issues. Well, well the British had been the most, I mean, like, as you explained a short while ago, they've been the most bellicose people in world history against their own fellow white nations. It, it's been treacherous. Mm -hmm. that they destroyed Ireland. That, that They destroyed half the Irish in the 14th century, 13th century. They won't admit that, though. They, the only Holocaust they'll acknowledge is Germany gassing more Jews than there were in Europe at the time. To continue... When Mr. Chamberlain was here in Munich in 1938 and hypocritically presented his peace proposals to me, this man had already decided for himself to proclaim immediately after his return, I have been granted a postponement and now let us arm until we can attack Germany. We are quite aware that any ceasefire agreement today would be just that, a ceasefire agreement. They would hope that in a few years I would no longer stand at the helm of this Reich, and then the fight could begin anew. Now, now let me look, look at the way Hitler is portraying Chamberlain here. And, and that's just the opposite that I've ever seen in, in mainstream academia, or, or the, the, the typical mainstream story is that Chamberlain was weak, and and he wouldn't do anything about Hitler, and and um, he 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 kept um, giving in to Hitler, and and didn't want to go to war against Hitler, and I, I don't know that that's what I'm accustomed to hearing, and here Hitler is portraying Chamberlain as, as a conniving statesman who who basically is um, 
yeah, you know, postponing war and planning behind his back. Right, and you know, this is one area where the British seem to be fairly honest and forthright. When I argue with British or any British historians or history buff types, and we come to the issue of Chamberlain, and I say, well, why did Chamberlain appease Germany? They'll come back and say, no, 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 it wasn't appeasement. He was just stalling for time. We needed time to organize and get ready to attack Germany. Chamberlain knew we weren't ready, and he just had to buy us two or three years. Right, but quite often Chamberlain's and Chamberlain is more often than not um, portrayed as having appeased Germany. Right, especially mainly in America, though. But in Britain, they're starting to become honest about what the Munich Conference was all about. And the same thing too. When you ask the the, the social democrats, the socialists, the leftists, the Stalinists, why did Stalin sign the pact with Germany in 1939? They say, oh, Stalin just needed the delay for three or four years to get ready. You know, because you ask them, well, why would Stalin make an agreement with the great hated fascist beast? They say, well, no, there was no agreement. There was no alliance. Stalin knew that Germany was inevitably going to be in a war with the Soviet Union. He just needed four years to get the Soviet Union ready. I'm sure, too, if Germany, we've already shown this, I think, with um, Suvorov, if Germany had not attacked the Soviet Union on the 22nd of June in 1941, the Soviets would have attacked them in July or August, September at the latest of that year. I think it's inevitable. The Soviet military was deployed in a forward position, and the Germans preempted them and caught them off guard. They were ready for an attack. But they probably part. only, only um, precipitated the attack by a couple of weeks, uh, I would think. Right, but it would have come no later than the end of the summer. The Soviet army was deployed in forward positions, ready for, you know, jumping off into Central Europe. They weren't prepared to defend. They were ready to attack. Right. Hence, it is my unalterable resolve to see this conflict through to a clear decision. Just as I rejected compromise in my struggle for Germany as a national socialist, so I reject compromise here as well. And a compromise is only possible when both sides bring something to the table. If Germany comes to the table and they say, you know, we'll withdraw from the areas of France we've occupied and we'll, we'll, we'll be happy with our 1914 boundaries and everything will be fine, and the Allies offer, okay, well, the NSDAP will be dissolved, Germany will go back under the heel of the Jew, the bankers are back in power, Hitler's removed from power, you lose all your Navy, you lose your Air Force, you lose all your Panzers, that's not a compromise, that's a capitulation. So if I bring something to the table and I'm offering something and all you bring are more demands, demands that I can't possibly meet while still being a sovereign nation and doing right by my people, there's no possibility, there's no reason to have negotiations. There's nothing to discuss. No, Hitler, Hitler sought peace over and over and over again with England, over and over and over again with France. France wanted no, um, no changes to the Versailles Treaty at all. France in the 1930s, the, the Prime Minister was Leon Blum, he was a Jew, France was basically under the control of Jews th throughout the era, and, and, and they, they didn't want to hear anything. That There was no negotiation. They were open for nothing. That there was no negotiation. Hitler could never negotiate with France. It was out of the question. He, he, well, go on. I was going to say, diplomacy is typically something that's conducted between statesmen, men of honor, gentlemen. You can't negotiate with Jews. All they'll accept is capitulation. Well, absolutely. 
that, that's that that's clear from history in 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 this case from from the French role in in the creation of the Second World War. Right, and if everybody at Versailles had been a Hitler or the caliber of Hitler, there wouldn't have been a Treaty of Versailles as we know it. There would have been a completely different honorable treaty. And and France was very weak at the time, and 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 the proof of that is how quickly Hitler took France. And, and yet they they were probably the most bellicose voice. Well, you know, the, the Jews in France didn't really care. They just moved on. They left. They got France into a war that it wasn't ready for, and they were the first ones off that sinking ship. I think the Jews have been masters of manipulating Frankish vanity for, for many centuries now. Go on. I extended my hand often in vain. They wanted this fight. Now they shall have it. The German Volk will see this fight through to the end. The danger that it might erupt again within one or two or three years after a period of heightened tension must be removed. The German Volk wants to have peace finally. It wants a peace that allows it to work and which does not allow international scoundrels to agitate among other peoples against us. These are the folks who make their fortunes through war. I have no reason to wage war for material considerations. For us, it is but a sad enterprise. It robs us, the German Volk, and the whole community of so much time and manpower. I do not possess any stocks in the armament industry. I do not earn anything in this war. I would be happy if we could work again, as I used to work for my Volk. But these international war criminals are at the same time the armaments industry's greatest black marketeers. They own the factories. They make business. They are the same people we had here in Germany earlier. There can be but one confrontation with these people. One of us must break. And this one will not be under any circumstances Germany. And if this Germany today possesses a different attitude, this is because National Socialism has pulled the German Volk up by its bootstraps again. It has created the mental, psychological, moral, and also material conditions for the enormous victories by the Wehrmacht of our young Reich. Every soldier knows it and must know that the armies which today march beneath our banner are the revolutionary armies of the Third Reich. They carry in their hearts not only faith in a Germany as it once was, but they carry in their hearts the faith in Germany as we all imagine it will be in the future, for which we have fought so long, the faith in a better Reich, in which the great goals of our national and social movement shall be realized. Hitler realized it was either Germany or the Jews, that Germany would never have self-determination as long as there were Jews in Germany. Right. Well, this was a great conflict, in my opinion. It, it was the defining point in, in human history in the last several thousand years, several hundred anyway, between, as I said, national sovereignty and internationalism, nationalism and globalism. This conflict with the Axis powers and the Allies, it was basically a fight between good and evil, between freedom and tyranny and oppression, between honor and tradition and decadence and decay and degeneracy, and unfortunately, the good guys lost. Well, well, absolutely. Anybody who could read, anybody, and and this, it it, it just drives me batty. And I was um, more or less um, debating. It wasn't really a formal debate this morning with a German woman who, whose son went to Buchenwald. He went to Buchenwald, and he learned on a field trip when he was 17 years old, he learned that many Christians died in Buchenwald. 
and he brought that story back to his mother, and she believes it to this day. And she does not believe the Jewish Holocaust propaganda, but she clings to the idea that Hitler, the evil Mr. Hitler, killed many Christians at Buchenwald in, in, in the World War II era. And, and it, it's just sad that she's bought this Zionist state espoused propaganda. It, it's, it's incredible to me, and, and, and it's impossible to talk her out of it. Because it's she, she has a personal connection to she's of German blood, and, and her son went to this place and saw these things, and, and I, I was like, okay, so you were told by a Zionist. Let, let me get this straight: you were informed by a a Zionist-controlled state, and at a at at one of their facilities by one of their tour guides who collects one of their paychecks. You were told these things, and you're going to believe them. And, that's and she wasn't even told them directly. She was told them by a child that they brainwashed. Right. And, and that's so just it, it, one example, it, but but it's it, it's incredible that the um she she wouldn't understand that um I, I explained the re-education of German of, of the German people, which was conducted by the Jews under the might and force of of uh, imperial America. In Germany, in the late 40s and through the 1950s, that there was a re-education campaign in Germany that basically propagandized the entire nation. So she believes third-hand hearsay. Well, I mean, well, it's not even that's... just you know, it's not even just the kid saying these people said this. It's the kid saying this tour guide said that these historians said that the government said this. So it's three or four times removed. Well, well, right, but but personal experiences like that, when people have them and and they believe them, are are very difficult to overcome. All right, and that we possess such a Germany today, this we owe to those who marched in the year 1923, and above all to those who then, as the first, shed their blood for the movement. These 16 dead are more than simply 16 dead. They became the crown witnesses for a new resurrection of our Volk. Their sacrifice was all the greater, for back then they could yet barely perceive in their faintest fantasies what has come into being since. Then they acted out of a boundless love for Germany. When someone came to join the movement then, one could only say to him, you can give up everything else, since you will be laughed at and ridiculed and persecuted. You must be aware that you will be without bread, and they will throw you out of everywhere. You will have nothing of which you can be certain other than death, perhaps. And it seems to me that Americans don't love America, and, and the Brits don't love Britain nearly a, a tenth as much as these Germans love Germany, since they had no guarantee of anything. They weren't even guaranteed of success. They weren't even guaranteed they'd be alive in a week. They could be murdered like Horst Wessel was murdered. Well, well right, but in, but, in, but, but in 1932, all of Germany was in the same economic depression that the rest of the world was in, that the rest of the West was in. And, right, but the Germans got themselves out. And they didn't, under they didn't, the thumb of the Jews. And Adolf Hitler promised to deliver from them from that, and that's why the Jews declared war against Germany. And Hitler did deliver them from it. And look at this, in, in this speech, Adolf Hitler basically, uh, I mean, he's not really boasting. He's really just stating his accomplishments, and, and, and they're all factual. And, and how far he had taken Germany in eight years, 
how much he had built up Germany's armaments, Germany's infrastructure, Germany's production capacity from, from what it was in, in the aftermath of World War One and the Weimar years and, and, um, and the Depression. Well, well Germany, the, the German people saw that miraculous recovery and, and they, they had their full faith and trust in, in this man who delivered them from the clutches of, of the Jewish vulture capitalists. I'm convinced if we replicated this somehow in America, if we instituted national socialism and either enacted measures to strip the Jews of their ill-gotten gains and their power over us, or we just expelled them, within eight years we could double or triple our GDP, and unemployment would be less than 1%. Well, well of course. We wouldn't have unemployment. Uh, I mean, virtually. It, it would but, not... I mean, there might be some people that just don't want to work, and some well, well, poor, of course. you know, you're, you're naive people who give them charity. Yeah, you're always going to have a certain element that doesn't that doesn't um, that that basically parasites off the the rest of the population that that doesn't um, want to work. You're going to have lazy people that that's we've had them since the dawn of time. Usually, it, it's um, yeah, usually that they Darwin's theory of survival of the fittest has some merit in a society of equals, and usually that's what happens to those people. They go by the wayside. That they, they die right. of disease or, or whatever, and um, they're eliminated unless there's unnatural intervention, such as welfare programs and things like that. That the um, right. that, that's so I'm social philosophizing. I really don't want to do that. That the, you're always going to have the poor. Christ said the poor would always be with you. That there's right. nothing we're going to do about that, right? That we're what always going to have a certain element that for some, one reason or another doesn't support themselves and, and needs help or assistance from, the, from the, the state or the community or however you want to term it. But basically, what, without Jewish usury and, and without the Jewish speculators in the economy, and that's what Hitler eliminated. He eliminated the usurers, and he eliminated the speculators. And 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 things like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where, where the Jews basically ma manipulate all of our raw materials and and farm products, and and reap tremendous profits while, while the farmers don't even get paid hardly. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, that are wrong with, with vulture capitalism that we don't, that the typical American doesn't even notice. Eliminate, we don't want oh, sorry, go on. eliminate the usurers and eliminate the speculators and, and, and America would be an economic paradise. Yes, there's no doubt. Well, it's fairly common in this country for a farmer to take out a loan against his future crop. So he does that, expecting he's going to be able to sell it for price X. And then the Jewish manipulators, mostly in Chicago, they speculate it, they bid the price down, and now he has to take out another loan or he loses his farm or he just has to sell off part of the farm. And gradually he loses, you know, maybe a couple hundred acres this year, a couple hundred the next year, and he loses more and more land to these developers. I don't think there's any reason, legitimate reason, why, you know, a bushel of wheat might go for 20 or $30 today, and maybe next month it's going for $100 a bushel. And it's not because there was a natural disaster and millions of acres of prime farmland are now underwater from some Mississippi River flood, rather just because some Jewish speculator wanted to bid it up. That's ridiculous. That, that's not how an economy is supposed to run. Well, well they were the people that Hitler targeted, when um, he came to power with the usurers and the speculators 
and he got rid of them all. And most of them happen to be Jews, by the way. I mean, if the Jews want to take bets and speculate, I would tell them that they can speculate on how long it's going to be until they're driven out of the country. To continue. But before... But you see before you something for which we all fight. It is a new Germany of honor which we will resurrect and which will secure for its sons their daily bread. And it will take a place once more in this world which it deserves, based on the number of its people, its historical past, and our former, present, and future worth. And all these men came to take their places. Many of them felt this but subconsciously. There were so many common folk in this movement. We were avoided like the plague by those who held themselves to belong to the intelligentsia or the upper middle classes. We were avoided like the plague by them, so that the greater numbers of those who joined our ranks were mostly mere common people. Perhaps they had not so clear a vision of what was to come. They only knew one day things will be better. And I think we're starting to see that in this country, where people don't know what direction we should go, but they know that the direction we're going in is wrong. They, they don't fully understand exactly why everything's going wrong, but they realize this country is on a course for ruin. We're about, you know, we're standing on the precipice, ga gazing down into the abyss, and they realize all it takes is one push, and boom, over we go. But they don't know how to come back from that precipice. Have you well, noticed that well, as well, well they Bill? Don't, there's no answer, you know, there's no answer anywhere in the right, uh, un unless you understand National Socialist Germany, and, and most of the pro-white movement is probably run by Jews in this country, and most of the right-wing conservative movements are definitely run by Jews in this country. And and the last thing that, that, that they have, everybody locked into this conservative-liberal dichotomy and, and this capitalist-communist dichotomy, and the last thing they're going to look at is... Um, the, National Socialism and how Germany pulled itself out of the, the oppression of the bankers and into an economic utopia in, in, in a very, very short time. I shouldn't say utopia. I should probably say paradise but because um, it wasn't perfect. But Germany thrived in, in the middle of a world that, that was in desperate, the desperation of the banker-orchestrated depression. And Hitler was able to arm Germany and build up a, um, a, 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 a formidable armed forces, and everybody worked, and everybody ate, and it was a happy population, and it was a healthy population, and, and um, he did that in the middle of the strife and from the strife and despair of the loss in World War One and, and the oppression of the Weimar years. And, and on top of that, the, the banker imposed Great Depression. And, and, and sanctions. And Hitler basically pulled Germany out of the pits of hell in five years. And France never did that. They couldn't do it. Right. And I'd like to um, quote myself. Maybe it's bad form to quote oneself, but this was from our Weeby program. And my exact words on the subject of politics in America. The doom of any movement, political or otherwise is guaranteed when they accept Jews as members or when they accept the money offered by Jews in the form of donations ostensibly due to ideological solidarity, but what is really a means by which the Jew causes the movement to become dependent upon his money so as to facilitate for his ultimate entry into and neutralization of that movement. You, you forgot about Sunday slots on Republic Radio, Republic Broadcast. <laughs> Did I say that? What about it? 
Well, well, it's the equivalent of accepting Jewish money. You mean going on Republic Broadcasting? Uh, getting a time slot for a program on Republic Broadcasting. Yes, I was making a, a personal oh. status. Well, I, I think it. Republic Broadcasting is worthless. You can't get your thoughts out. You can't get your ideas out. We want to go on for 10, 15 minutes and make a point. And on Republic, every three minutes, they interrupt you with four minutes worth of commercials for crap you don't need from some Jew who's going to scam you. Well, well, right. As soon as you get Jewish advertising or, or Jewish money into any movement, it's dead. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm not going to take money from advertisers because I'm not going to be told by advertisers what I can and cannot say. As soon as you start dealing with the devil, you're in trouble. Absolutely. Continuing. They only knew one day things will be better. Things will be better one day because we will build up a new Reich. And in this Reich, much will be realized that our foes actually yearn for deep inside themselves without realizing that following along the path on which they have set out, they shall never be able to achieve it. For this, these men stood up, and for this, 16 of them gave their lives back then. They were 16, although they might equally well have been 500 or 5,000, and not one of them uttered a complaint. Not even the wounded betrayed the cause. To the contrary, the wounded all the more eagerly became party comrades once again, all the more zealous than before. And in the footsteps of these 16, many hundred followed, here and beyond the borders of the Reich. They followed along the path of martyrs for years, for nearly a decade. Their numbers were the greatest in the Ostmark, in the Sudetenland. Perhaps all the stronger was their belief, because the battle seemed the most hopeless there. How could all these common folk surmise the course of history as it has now truly come to pass? How could they foresee the miracle which would return them home gloriously to a great Reich one and a half or two decades later. Still they fought with a faithful heart without knowing precisely if this world, if this would come to pass during their own lives. And I just wanted to comment that I think Hitler's talking about the social Democrats and the left when he says, without realizing that following along the path on which they have set out, they shall never be able to realize it. So the social Democrats who want Germany built up, they want capitalism smashed, they want justice for the workers, they want the nation to be strong and prosperous, they don't realize that by pursuing communism they're never going to achieve that. And I would say that Hitler made concerted efforts to reach out to the left. Would you agree, Bill? He didn't just come in and smash them and kill them and send them to Dachau. He, he, he made appeals to them to join in the party. He, he um... I don't know. The, the Strassers were were leftist communists, weren't they? That they were. Um, more they were purged. Yeah, yeah, they were purged. They had to be purged. But that that was part of that appeal to reach out to the left. I think. Uh, I don't know. I'm, the the history is a little murky to me. I haven't studied it enough. Well, supposedly Goebbels was semi-communist before Hitler brought him around. Well, well, there were a lot of communists in Germany that they were actually pretty good people, but they saw communism as that the they were deceived into seeing communism as the only answer to um, the, the vulture capitalism. Well, when when that's the the dichotomy, you you, you choose one side or the other, and, and um, not everybody has the the thought to see a third way and and if we did right. we'd have 1800 different third ways right well, well very few people in germany had the vision at the time that adolf hitler and and the early national socialist party had uh, i mean the man right. you know he he was at the cutting edge 
and and understood the evils of both capitalism and and Marxism and communism, and and he understood that there was a third way, and and fascism was that way, and and national socialism is based loosely upon fascist ideas. Absolutely, and most people aren't really, they're not philosophers. They they see Republicans and Democrats, and they just pick one and they stay with it. They don't realize that both parties are corrupt, both parties are wretched and rotten, so there has to be a third way. Most people can't think outside the box. Well, well they can't right. Break the paradigm. And let me qualify that because Hitler didn't develop the concepts of national socialism, they were developed by French philosophers probably a hundred years before Hitler or close to it. However, Hitler saw the value in it and was able to build a viable party platform and extend that to a viable operating government and, and based on those principles. Right. It's wonderful to have an idea, but if the idea doesn't get put into practice, then it's meaningless. Right. Well, look at the French revolutions. What, 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 the 1848 revolution, they took over the country and didn't know what to do with it. And in the Paris Commune in the 1870s, they, they, they didn't know anything. They didn't know how to govern. They had no program to continue. And all this took its beginning from this November 8 and November 9, 1923. And so we celebrate the commemoration of these men all the more profoundly moved today than even then, since all of them bore in their hearts the disgrace of the collapse of the year 1918-1919. And this disgrace gnawed at their hearts and upset them. How often did we sit together aglow with one thought? This must be repaired in our history. This cannot last. This cannot remain. Otherwise, the German Volk would be burdened with the blemish for all time. We will erase this from the book of our history. We will wash it away again. We will resurrect a Germany of might, power, and magnificence. Germany must be resurrected one way or another. And in this spirit we fought. In this spirit they fell. In this spirit the battle continued to be waged. And in this spirit we face the outside world today, and we will complete that for which they fell back then. They believe they are destroying Germany. They will be proven mistaken. Germany will rise from the battle all the more. Deutschland Sieg Heil. And I think that was a fairly moving speech. Hitler understood what they had done, how they had gotten to the point they were at. And I believe that this wasn't just meaningless propaganda, telling people rah, 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 cheerleading for the team, we're going to win, we're going to win, when he expects to lose. He, he honestly and sincerely anticipated victory, and he had every right to. He had every reason to. I don't think he foresaw that the entire world would basically come down on the Axis powers. Well, I mean, well, I'm sure he anticipated conflict at some point with America and the Soviet Union, probably not both at the same time. And to the extent to which Americans would flock to the military for a chance to go on destroy Europe and hand it over to the Bolsheviks. What Western academics usually dismiss, from, from what I understand and from what I've seen, they generally dismiss Joseph Goebbels as a mere propagandist and, and write off most of what he said as mere propaganda. And, and, and that's, of course... Um, that that's of course oversimplified misrepresentation. Goebbels actually believed that Germany was in the right and that the right would prevail. Hitler actually believed that Germany was on the side of righteousness and that righteousness would prevail. In truth, 
only Christ can save us from this mess that, that the world has become. There's no doubt that's the Christian message. That's what Christians should anticipate everywhere. However, Hitler, of course, didn't understand that message, and he did everything he could, believing that he was on the side of right and that God was on his side. And, and he expressed that many times in his speeches. And he thought that God should be on the side of justice and righteousness. And, and um, it, it just wasn't meant to be at that time. But they believed that because they knew that they were right and sought justice for, for their people, that fate would see to it that they prevailed. And, and providence well, would see to it that they prevailed. They believed that. Most people, when they see David facing off against Goliath, they bet on Goliath. Well, right, but sometimes David wins, and these men believed that they were on the side of righteousness and that God should be on their side for that reason. They they believed that the, the international capital capitalist Jews were evil. They understood that these people were evil and and, and that they were devils, and, and Hitler calls them that, and um, it just wasn't meant to be. Right, and we're told, too, I believe, in Isaiah that, Ephraim and Manasseh would fight against Judah without a cause. Well, well, that's in um, Zechariah chapter 12, I believe. I thought it was Isaiah 11. Okay, maybe it's there 12. I don't know. I, I think I remember. It, it's immaterial. It, it's um, right. that there is biblical prophecy that, that governs our history, and um, it, if we don't see it and, and understand it, we won't. It could break a man's faith, seeing evil prevail over and over and over again. Well, it seems our people definitely have a history of fighting amongst themselves, fighting each other without a cause, and fighting each other at the behest of Jewish interlopers. Well, well that's why Christ gave us a new commandment, to love our brother, and, and that's why the apostles instructed Christians very... um very strongly to reject all Christ deniers and to reject all of the antichrists, plural, those who denied Christ. Christians are commanded in Scripture to reject Jews and to ostracize the Jews. We have failed to do that. Today, Christians worship the Jews, therefore the Jews rule the world. It's that simple. A real simple concept. The world's a pretty miserable place. Can you imagine if America had followed on the course the National Socialists followed? We wouldn't be in the middle of the worst depression in the last hundred years. Our country wouldn't be falling apart at the seams. Well, well of we course, have we, a, we'd have heaven on earth, basically. Well, right, we, we wouldn't have a nation where 40% of the people have some sort of STD. Absolutely not. And Hitler spent many pages in Mein Kampf um, belaboring the syphilis plague in Germany during the years of the Weimar Republic. And the Jews, the Jewish historians in the, the Jewish History Channel, they contend that's because Hitler had an issue with syphilis because he had been infected with it, where there's no, there's no basis in fact for that assertion.
but it seems with the Jews, everything has to go back to sex. Someone can't criticize syphilis or condemn syphilis unless they're, um, they've had syphilis themselves. They're obsessed with sex. Well, yes, they are. It, it's I mean, at, it's at, been at like that it, since the dawn of time. The Jew is the ultimate nation wrecker. I think Goebbels described him as that a few times, right? And if we were to expel them from America, I'm convinced they would all, you know, that they would leave reluctantly, begrudgingly, of course. They, would, they wouldn't leave voluntarily. They would mumble and mutter threats as they left, and then they'd just go to Russia, Britain, China, and Germany, India, and they'd set themselves up there. They'd hobnob with their cousins over there, and then within five or ten years, the propaganda machine would be focused on America. We'd be denounced as devils, demons, conspiring to take over the whole world. You know, today we rule America, tomorrow the world. They'd claim that we were saying such things, and then there'd be another world war. Well, well that's just a repeat of history, isn't it? Uh, I mean, the Jews were expelled basically from the Byzantine Empire, and 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 all Catholic, you know, Christian nations from the fourth to the sixth centuries A.D. And, and the Jews went and they set up shop in Arabia, and they set up shop in Kazakhstan, and they converted the Khazars to Jewry, and. When they were expelled from Visigothic Spain after it went Christian, that they that they converted the um, the Moors to Islam, and 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 they brought the Moors to conquer Spain because they were right. expelled from Spain, and, and they were expelled from all the Byzantine lands, and it took a little longer, but eventually they brought the Turks to conquer the Byzantines. Right, and, and the Jews so were behind all of that. And that could be that that could be um, that can be documented. The Jews were behind all of that. The, the Turkish the end, invasions of, of the Byzantine lands, the the, um, the destruction of Constantinople, eventually that the um, the destruction of of once Christian and and Gothic Spain. The Jews were behind all of that. The Jews created Islam. So that they could, and, and I'm going out on a limb here because I can't, I, I can document that Jews are definitely in connection with, with Muhammad, and Muhammad may have been a Jew, and that can be documented. But the fruits of history prove the point that the Jews created Islam so that they could rally and, and solidify that these, that these, um, ragtag nomadic Arab tribes against Christendom. That's the result of history. Well, they needed an army, and Islam provided the glue for that army to come together and stay together. No doubt. And I, I've thought about it, too, at the end of it. Even if there is expulsion as an option, who do we hate enough that we want to blight them with 10 million Jews? I mean, really, the, the, the Jews the are contrary to all men, the, and they the have Kenyans, no place in this world. The, the Ugandans. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're, they're all headed to the lake of fire. And the only person who's going to cleanse us it, is the, the God that promised that cleansing upon our repentance. When we learn to love our brother, then maybe he will cleanse our land when we repent of our sin. That's the promise of Scripture. That's the only way out for our people. There is no other way 
but for us to repent of all this evil that we've engaged in being pandered to by the Jew, to repent of all that evil, to put away those television sets, to put away the gambling, to put away the, the drunken revelry with race mixers in Miami, to, to put away the idea that Mexicans can be Christians, to, to love your brother and, and to um, repent of your sin, and, and I'm taking cheap shots at certain clowns, and, and I'm sorry oh. for that. I can't help what myself. What about, what about white people that are only 15% Jewish? Yeah, yeah, right. There you have it. Well, we have to repent of our sin. Yahweh will cleanse our land. That's the Christian promise when we repent of our sin. Right. So we don't make excuses. We repent. No, we don't make excuses. We don't make excuses and say that we were hanging out with race mixers and, and mestizos because the land we live in was only 18% white. Well, we don't make excuses like that. All right. Okay, um, that that's the program. That that's the um, what we'll call it the 1940 Munich March commemoration speech. Adolf Hitler. Thank you, Brian. Praise Yahweh. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, I'll be here Friday with Amos. Part seven, and and I'll concentrate on Amos and and not the um, the distractions in our Christian identity community. I, I pray. Thank you for listening. I'll be here Friday. Whether I'm on talk show or not is to be seen, but I will definitely be here, and there will be a program. This is William Fink, Christiania.org. Praise Yahweh and good night. Praise Yahweh. This song's for Eli James. Who made who? Evidently, he doesn't know.
Thank you.